1: So this would be a great opportunity for you to have some family time together and add to this, this is the skeleton, you put some meat on it, but this is the skeleton, this is the skeleton of the Bible's trustworthiness. There are five of these here. The Bible is what is known as literarily superior. You'll have to get it up on the screen. Literarily superior, that's almost a word you never hear, literarily superior. That means in literature alone, it is superior to anything else that was written according to literature. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. While you write that down. When God was giving the messages to these writers, they often would give it verbally, then it would become written. But now we're getting to the point where the Bible is not just the authentic, original, catch the words, original manuscripts. The original manuscripts then were copied so that many more people could have them. So the big question is, here it is, here it is. Is this the telephone effect? Remember when you were little kids and you'd sit in a big circle and the teacher would do this for a little game? She'd say, okay, I'm going to whisper something to a student in chair number one. He's going to go to st- whisper in the ear of chair number two, chair number three, and we're going to go around 20 students. And we finally get to the end. We're going to hear if that person, chair number 20, student number 20, says what I said to chair number one. Do you all know what I mean? How many played that game? Okay, How many of you were like me? I, I'm, I, you, you should be glad you weren't my teacher. I heard it in this year but I was going to tell this other person something in that ear, all right? Did any of you do that? Raise your hand. Oh, thank you. A couple of the guys here that are honest, you know. I shouldn't have done that, but that's what I did. Now, why am I telling you this? you are going to be bombarded with people that will, now not, will discount the Bible because they think the telephone effect occurred. Okay, maybe God did write it back then, but what we have now today with all the translation, that it's way different than what it's back then. So that's why we can't trust this today. We need more current message from God. We can't trust the ancient message from God. Now, here's why you can trust it. First of all, when they were translating the Bible from the original manuscripts to the copies, they did it so closely to the time of the original writings. Now when they did it, the people who were selected to copy from the original manuscripts were holy people that themselves were just dripping with integrity. They were people that you would look at and say, now that is a person I could trust with my wife and my life that had that much integrity. Now they showed that integrity that while they were writing this material from the ancient manuscript to the copies now, that they would write it very carefully with special ink. I'm using the word ink, it's a special writing from those days, an ink when they got to the name of God, because they recognized the holiness of God, they were already committed believers, they were committed to the lordship of God in Christ, that when they got to that name, they would have to take a ceremonial bath to make sure that they were cleaned on the outside, that they confess any known sin, because they were about ready to write the name of God. They would wipe their pen and start over with clean. And then they even couldn't write the whole word for Jesus or Lord out Yahweh. Now when they got all done with copying it very carefully, Maybe let's say one book. When they were all done, they counted every word, every letter in the original. Then they went back to theirs that they had copied, because there was no copy machines. They counted every word, and then they counted every letter. If they were off one word, one letter, they had to destroy their work and start all over again. There was more than one person doing it, so you don't have... One person who might have had an integrity crisis and now we have a bunch of junk today. You had a bunch of other guys and a great big pool of people that were now holding each other accountable. Godly people so that we would have these copies today. Now go back to your outline if you will. Literarily accurate. Now if you will, you're going to see a chart there that gives you some documentations. On the left hand side, you're going to see document names about things that happened in history. Some of you will remember studying about Caesar's Gallic Wars. We're not talking about the Garlic Wars. They didn't fight over garlic. It's Gallic Wars, all right? Some of you might not have heard of these others. That's all right. But it is important for those that have studied history at all. You will know that the events that occurred under document name happened many, many years before they were actually recorded. Listen, listen. They happened. The events happened before they were actually recorded. Go to the right-hand column. The earliest date is not the date of the event. The earliest date is the date that they decided to now reduce it to written form. So now you can see 900 A.D. was when they started writing about Caesar's Gallic Wars. How many manuscripts do we have? We have 10 of those manuscripts. How many do we have of Livy's History of Rome? We have 20. You can see all the rest. Now look down at the bottom where it says New Testament. In the New Testament days, they copied from those writings as soon as they were finished in A.D. 125. Now, I'm reducing this and simplifying it, but they didn't have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 or more. They didn't have 1,000, 2,000, they had 14,000 copies that we could look at to see the accuracy of all of this. Folks, when you believe the Bible, you're not taking merely a blind leap of faith in this thing. You're taking in a great amount of, of, of scholarship. And, and, and academics, and it's accurate. The people that are taking the blind leap of faith are those that are choosing to believe other books hold the truth to the divine and eternity. And the tragedy is they're holding toothpicks. And I love them and my job isn't to condemn them. My job is to swim to them and help them understand that, sure, my life preserver is not made out of wood. It's made out of blood. The blood of Christ. Number, letter B, the Bible is historically accurate, historically accurate. That means when it spoke about history, it was accurate. This is so cool, folks. This is, I I have a lot of history lessons, history stories, but this to me is so cool. Ezekiel prophesies that there's going to be Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to come into a city known as Tyre. Please bear with me for just a moment. I'm going to move Chinaman's hat. You know the island Chinaman's hat? and I'm going to swing it out somewhere out in Honolulu Bay, you know, right where Pearl Harbor area is, okay? Now, he's prophesying that Honolulu is going to fall and is going to be destroyed. He prophesies that. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He charges at the city of Tyre which was a tremendous metropolis, very much like Honolulu, wipes out the people, burns the city, crumbles it all up, destroys everything about it, but the people get away. They climb in their little, maybe they had outriggers, I don't know, and they go out to an island, out into the wet water, like going out to Chinaman's Hat. And I know the amount of people won't fit on Chinaman's Hat, so just don't, don't worry about that, just, just get, go with me. So they go out to there, and so Nebuchadnezzar does this. He sets up with the Medes and the Persians over there in Tyre, and he's looking out at all those people over there. But remember what Ezekiel said. Ezekiel said this. Ezekiel said that Tyre would be destroyed, but Ezekiel went further. He said it would also be scraped flat like the top of a rock, and you would dry fishing nets on it. So you guys know what I mean by fishing nets. You just lay the fishing nets on there and they would dry them. But the problem with this was was that when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he did that. He destroyed the old city. But it wasn't scraped flat like a rock. But a couple of centuries later, 300 centuries later, between 600 and 300, if you were one of those agnostics out there, you could say, see, the Bible is wrong. The Bible has false statements in there. You can't trust the Bible. You just have to wait long enough because the Bible will catch up. So let's go on. So now the next person that comes into this is Alexander the Great. He comes in and he's sitting over here on all this rubble and looks out there and he says, hey, I'm conquering the world. There's a bunch of people on that island out there. So he says, how am I going to get out there? So he now takes all this rubble and he builds a causeway. And so the people have no other island to go to. So what happens? Alexander conquers the people who started in Tyre, went out there to that island. How do I know? The Bible says that. And you could read that in history today. Number three. Number three, it's prophetically accurate. Every time it talks about Jesus Christ in a fulfilled prophecy, it happens. Someone once counted 333 prophecies. I don't know if you can go that accurate on how many. I think the numbers might change a little bit, but there are many hundreds of prophecies of Christ. Christ did not fulfill all of them. Don't be shocked. Because he still has to fulfill the ones about him coming back the second time. I know he's coming back the second time. Because every prophecy that was supposed to be fulfilled. him coming the first time. Have all been fulfilled. So if he can do the first batch. He surely can do the second batch. So I have no worry about that. I've given you a couple here. Next D. The Bible is scientifically accurate. Scientifically accurate. Kids you're going to enjoy this one. The other one is, is good because it deals with Christ. I may give you that when I get to that. But kids this will be kind of neat for you. Back in the Bible days, if you were in a history class, and a science class, and a geography class, and you in the back of the room finally got real feisty and you wanted to say, tell me, what's this world look like? What is the earth? Look like? Is it flat? If you lived in a certain time of civilization, probably in the area of India, they would tell you, back in those days, in the Bible days, that the earth was on the back of an elephant. And then they would say that this elephant was standing on the back of some kind of a tortoise. And it was swimming in some kind of a cosmic sea. And that's what they believed. Now if you sped up the history a little bit and you moved into the area of Rome, they would say, ha ha, Rome. The earth is flat, but there's five pillars, one on each corner, and there's another pillar holding up that sag, you know, that little middle-aged sag in the middle right there. They had no answer for where those pillars were and what they were standing on. Then you go to Greece, and you know this one, Where's the earth? How do they hold up the earth? And they would say, Ah, that's easy. It's on the back of Atlas. Okay? Now what is Atlas standing on? They didn't go any further than that. The Bible said something differently though. The Bible said, Against all of what the secular worldview was teaching, The following. Which was absurd. I mean, think about it. Live in those days for a moment. The Bible says that the earth, Believe it or not, Is round. Now it didn't use the word round like a coin. It used the word round in the Hebrew That means spheroid, like a ball. Then it says that this ball was not connected to anything. Hmm. It was hung out in space, suspended upon nothing, way out there. In fact, the Bible also said there are four corners. Now, there are some debates about four corners. Does that mean east, west, north, and south? It could mean that. That's kind of a, uh, maybe a way to say four corners. But there have been some physicists that took that phrase, four corners, and they decided to see, are there four corners of the earth? And here's what they've come up with. They said there are four bulges on planet earth. There are four little, if you go to the center, there's bulges. It doesn't necessarily mean mountain, mountain top peaks. It just means bulges from the very center of the earth. Where there are some bulges? I, I don't know enough about it, except my research, and I've done my homework, says it's in the following areas. It says it's in Peru, it's in Ireland, it's in Australia, and it's in South Africa. So whether or not you want to say those are the four corners or not, I can tell you this. The earth is not on the back of an elephant. It's not on the back of Charles Atlas. It's not on my back. But it is round, suspended in space, hung upon nothing. Scientific, I, there's so many scientific statements. Maybe some Sunday I should go through those for you. Last letter E, it works in our life. It works in our life. And the reason I like to end with this one is because this is the one where the rubber really meets the road. Now you wrote that very quickly and you're ready to get out of here, but folks, this is what you really we really need to hear this. If there was one criticism by the man on the bus bench and the gal at the beach, it's gonna be this. More reasons than not that they hold on to these toothpicks is because they see such a dysfunctional, disjointed Christianity out there that they almost would rather have faith in a toothpick even if it means that they're going to perish forever than to be like a weird Christian that's out there that's hanging on to a life preserver. And I'd like to tell you that if you're a blood-bought, born-again believer in Christ, the Word of God can change you. The top four reasons are all objective. You can step aside, look at it, history, literary, superiority, all of that. That's all objective. Can't change that. And what I'm about to tell you is subjective. You're looking at a guy, as imperfect as I am, and I'm I'm on a journey still. I'm not there. I am hanging on to the Bible. I have complete confidence in the Bible because it has worked in my life. I was a kid, like I said, who never grew up in a church. I would come home at night. I'd lay my head on my pillow as a 16-year-old kid. And when you're 16, you don't tell anybody these things because you've got to be macho, macho man, you know, that kind of thing. I'm laying there, and my tears are hitting the pillow, and I was scared to die. As a surfer, I was afraid mostly to die because I put myself in harm's way on the waves all the time. And I was scared to death to die. I was lonely in my house. I was a two-born I had an older brother, younger sister, and the family vacillated to those two. And I really felt kind of out of touch with my family. I wasn't the star football player. I didn't have music to look to. I, I was just out there. I didn't have a group of druggies, so drugs didn't appeal to me. Smoking didn't appeal to me. And I guess I was too—I don't know—I don't know what the word is—but I was pure sexually. And there I was, all alone in this world. And did I think about committing suicide? I kind of think, I think I did. I think, I think I did, but I'm not, I'm not really sure. But I know this, that I probably was close enough that if I lasted in that condition long enough, I was, I was beautiful, I was, I was fertile for Satan to destroy me. And if it wasn't that there was a Christian who earlier on embraced what I already taught you so far this morning and decided to take their little inner tube and swim to this guy who was a geek, a nobody, a quiet little guy that hung. And that person who was as shy as, as, as anybody could be, as shy as you might be, chose to break out of their little safe bubble and swim to me, this guy, and share with me how I can know the Bible's the inspired word of God and that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And look. What the Word of God has done for me and can do for you. It can convert your soul. I have eternal life. I know that I know that I know that I know. I'm going to heaven. If I died in a wreck or an old-fashioned heart attack, your pastor right now, he's in heaven. When you look at that coffin and you see my body, you can say, that's the shell, the real nut's gone. That's me. The, the Word of God did that. I didn't do it. Number two, made wise the simple. Some of you are pretty, pretty much put together, but I was a simple-minded little boy I didn't know about drugs, didn't know much about girls, I didn't know much about life, but I'm going to tell you that when I trusted Christ as Savior, the wisdom I got wasn't, watch this, watch this, wasn't to know about drugs, wasn't to know about sex. What it was to know is how bad drugs were, how bad sex was, and how that there is a better life in Christ and that my life can have meaning and purpose. So when I gravitated to God, He took wherever I was and He says, I'm going to make something beautiful out of your nothing life. I didn't have a broken life, I had a nothing life. Can God take something out of a nothing life and make a something out of it? I think he has and he is and he still is. Can he take you that have been broken and make something? I think he delights to take broken people and rebuild them again. Number three, by giving joy to the heart. Remember my tears at night, my fear about death? I didn't walk around with a whole lot of morbidity, but I will tell you that I didn't have a lot of joy. But now I have all the joy in the world, folks. I mean, how many remember when we had the flood out here and we saw people walking in all that mud and dirt, and we were slapping each other on the back, laughing, and we said, we don't have any insurance, we got nothing but a mess, but we have God. And we were having fun. Now, were we because we just psyched ourselves up, we're a bunch of weirdos that just kind of had a blind faith? No. Supernaturally, the joy. Next, gives light or perception to the eyes. In other words, it's not just what we hear, but also sometimes what we can see. What's right and wrong gives warning to the servants. I have been warned, folks. I want you to know something. I won't. It's not. A, it's not important what, but I can tell you that there have been times that God, through His word, said, "Stand, that's out of bounds." It was like a it was like a circle with an image and a line through it, and God said, "Don't." And I'm going to tell you that that I have looked at that sign and thought, well, maybe that doesn't mean me. Maybe that means, or I would do this. It's okay, I see the sign. I'll just get a little bit past the sign. I won't go all the way past the sign. I'll just get a little bit past the sign. I'm going to tell you that while God's word warned me, it's still my job to respond to the warning. And the beautiful part about it is, watch this, every time I step beyond that sign, every time, God in his mercy and grace still nailed me. I have scars, I have people, I have relationships that I could try to rebuild again, and they're better, but they'll never be where they were because I step past the warning sign of God's word. As you get older, you learn that, so you don't <laughs> you see the sign and you get as far away as you can, which brings me to the last point, and that is he gives great rewards to those that have. And God has really rewarded me. He's rewarded me with his fruit. Joy, peace. He's rewarded me with promises in heaven of rewards. I don't know what they are all yet, but maybe some of you are going to be in heaven because of our ministry, and that's going to be a reward. But look at me. This word of God, it will never return unto him void. It'll accomplish what he wants. It's a book that you can trust. This is my life preserver. It's such an exciting life preserver. I will never be able to plummet its depths like the internet. I'll never get to the end of this here. And every time I read it, when I read it with an expectant heart, I learn more about God. I learn how much He loves me. I learn how much His grace is for me. I'm telling you, this is the best book. It's like, like you want to eat this thing that's sweeter than honey and honeycomb. Because it's truth. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, my friend, You have enough now to make a decision to believe the word of God. For in it, from cover to cover, there is still only one way to get to heaven. It's through faith and faith alone. The Old Testament begins by explaining who or what is the right object of our faith. It is the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, Old Testament. New Testament explains all about the Messiah who did come to do that. And so now it tells us from cover to cover that the vertex of our faith, the object of our faith must be the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about him more amplified later. But right now you know enough that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He died and he rose again and the book says that we're all sinners The book says we cannot get to heaven by good deeds. The book says it's not by works of righteousness. The book says that Jesus died and he rose again. The book says that it's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. I'm quoting from scripture. The inerrant, verbal plenary, inspired scripture. Jesus says, he that believes on me has right now everlasting life. Now you may want to go further and study this whole thing, but remember you're still hanging on to some toothpick and I can't guarantee when that toothpick's going to fail and you will drown. But you will drown without Christ. And we are swimming to you in what I hope was some bit of academic intelligence to show you that we don't have just a blind faith. We have reality and objectivity. We're swimming to you in love. And we want to come to you and wrap our arms around you and we will, we'll spend as much time with you to help you to... Come to this wonderful, wonderful life preserver. But only you can make the volitional choice and do it. Would you simply right now say, Lord, I am a sinner. I've done things wrong. I know that I'm separated from you. I'm hanging on to a lot of toothpicks, but I do recognize I'm not going to make it. I, I, there's an emptiness there. And this man is speaking to me from a book that he believes so confidently is free from error. So I'm going to trust that book when it says to believe in Jesus Christ, you, Lord, for the full forgiveness of my sin. Remember, God's grace and mercy is greater than however wicked you were in the past. Whatever you've done last night on Saturday night, whatever you've done this last year, Whatever bruised relationships and sins and wickednesses you've done, God says, I can forgive you of all of that. That's his grace. And he says, I will take an empty life and make something out of it. I'll take a broken life and make it new. But it must be by you placing your faith in me. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's no one here looking around, I'd like to have everybody to be quiet. No one to move around. Would you simply do this to let me know? I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And the person I'd like to have raise their hand is the one who is quietly saying this to the Lord. Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord who died. I am placing my faith in Christ, the resurrected Savior, for the full forgiveness of my sin. I come to you without good works. I come to you without trusting in you and doing good works. I'm coming to you as I am a sinner to be forgiven. I believe you died for me. Now put that in your own heart and thoughts. But you must transfer your faith from yourself, that toothpick, and place it in Christ, the only life preserver. Is there anyone in here with heads bowed and eyes closed who would like for me to remember them in prayer? Won't have you stand up, won't come forward, won't do that. But would you slip up your hand? Is there anyone in here today that with that quiet, uplifted hand would say, Pastor, I trusted Christ as my Savior. He is my forever life preserver. I'm going to heaven now and I want you to know it. Would you slip up your hand? Is there anyone at all today that would do that? Put it up. Put it down. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I must tell you, though, the consequences are horrific if you don't. You still have some time, but I can't guarantee when your heart will stop. So do it as quickly as you can. Make it your, your passion to discover truth. Seek out the Word of God. Spend time asking the tough questions. Don't be afraid. Get those questions answered. Become as a learner not as an argument. And we'll help you. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Word of God and for the men and women who literally lost their lives so that we would have it preserved for us today. I thank you that, Father, that we can talk to you and know that we are truly talking to the only God and Savior and Creator of this world, you. And that, Father, that you have chosen to reveal yourself through your Word and that you have chosen to keep it free from error. Now help us, Father, as a church family, to plummet its depths, to know it for its accuracy and for what it is, but also to know it so that we could know you, that the purpose of knowing this book is to know you accurately, and then, Father, to live for you faithfully. Thank you for those that indicated by an uplifted hand that they were trusting you as Savior. I pray now that they would go into the book and see that what we said is true. They talk to you in prayer, meet together regularly with other Christians Separate themselves from those that will only hinder and harm them. And Father, I love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida.